Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey everybody, Mercer here. Just a quick message for our listeners before we dig into All Things Must Pass. Since November 2020, we've lost access to several lines of communication to the Take It Away podcast. Specifically, if you have sent email to takeitawaypodcast at gmail.com, we have not received it. The same goes for our Instagram account and, in fact, our website. We're working to address these problems, but for the time being, if you need to get in touch with us, you can get in touch with us by our always thriving Take It Away Facebook pages. We have the main Facebook page there and a special clubhouse that you can gain access to if you answer some basic questions. The Facebook page is probably the best way to contact us at this time. However, you can contact us as individuals on Instagram. I'm Chris Mercer 94 and Paul is Old Timey Paul. We'll let you know as soon as we have a new email account, as soon as we have a website up and running again, and as soon as we solve our problem on Instagram. But for now, know that you can reach us on Facebook or as individuals on Instagram. We always appreciate your feedback. Often, it's absolutely crucial in keeping us honest. So do reach out if you have something to say. On to the album. Okay, welcome back to Take It Away, the complete solo Beatles podcast. I'm here with Paul Kaminsky. How you doing, Paul? You nailed that intro there, Chris. I'm very excited. I'm getting it. You know, <laughs> the old one was such a mouthful. I worked hard on it, and it's hard to abandon that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing well, thank you. How are you, Chris? I'm quite good. I'm quite good. It's a warm summer day here in Chicago. I'm having a little summer rosé. Wonderful. Well, the sun has just poked out here in sunny Portland, Oregon. And I'm going to just enjoy it for a moment because you know that that means a cloud is going to set in in maybe five to six minutes. Yeah, I think that's called a sunburst. (laughs) (laughs) You get them occasionally where you live. (laughs) Ah, But a cloudburst doesn't last all day, does it? (laughs) No. (laughs) So, all things must pass. Holy cow, we are actually digging into this. Yeah, the first solo beetle masterpiece, you could call it. Uh, Certainly many have. A big statement from Beatle George, you know, because as we discussed in the last episode, he had a bit of a hard run writing songs and learning the craft in the public eye. And with the scrutiny of the very successful team of Lennon and McCartney always there. And one of the things I found so interesting in doing the last episode with you was to actually be able to chart that course in a very clear way, which actually brings us to this record in a fairly concise way. Yeah. The path we charted throughout his Beatle years and the solo projects therein are really a direct lead-in to this project. And I never really thought of it that way because I was born in 85, 15 years after this album came out. And so 
sometimes for people, even though they're versed in the history, who were born after something came out, some of the context can get a little lost along the way. Sure. And context, as we know, is everything. And the context of this record is fascinating. I'm really glad we did that last episode. I had never had that experience, as we discussed at the time, of of going through all of George's Beatles songs like that and hearing them as of a piece, so to speak. But it it also turns out to be very useful that we did that because some of the songs we're going to cover on All Things Must Pass were written concurrently with Beatles songs, some of them going back to what, 65, 66? Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. which isn't long, really. We're five years, you know, big deal, you know. Regularly takes me five or six years to write songs for an album. So, <laughs> you know, I wasn't busy learning John and Paul's songs, you know. But in Beatle time, it, that's an eternity. <laughs> in Beatle time, that's an eternity. Every month in Beatle time is, is a lot. So, yeah, that is a lot. And it's a lot of progress for George, basically starting from scratch and becoming a songwriter. Yeah, I'm glad that we did that. So, you know, we can kind of jump in here to a bit more of the backstory because. Really, the last episode, as we mentioned, is a preamble to this one. And the Beatle years bring us to, you know, toward the tail end of 69 and into 1970. And as we know, the last Threedles sessions, uh, as we discussed last time, were conducted in very early 1970, where they were putting some overdubs on things, and in some cases, actually recording songs from whole cloth in the studio, Paul, George, Ringo, and George Martin. There's wonderful pictures from that era. And so, it's interesting to think, okay, that was then. And then very shortly after that, in the same month, I think, George is in the studio with John Lennon, recording Instant Karma. And obviously, we're not going to be talking about John Lennon's solo catalog this time around, but Instant Karma is a benchmark for a lot of reasons. One, it is a signal to Paul McCartney that John is no longer expending his avant-garde material exclusively for his solo projects. Because up until that point, you have, you know, Cold Turkey is an outlier, but it's kind of, I mean, it's a rejected Beatle track, Cold Turkey. And so now you get a pop song out of John Lennon solo. Well, Plastic Ono Band, but let's be real, solo. Yeah. And so that's a signal to Paul, oh, I think he might actually be serious this time. You know, because we know that they had the divorce conversation in the fall, but John sort of says a lot of things. And so it's hard to kind of parse what he really means, at least in that moment. And so instant karma is a big, big signal and probably the, the last straw in the dividing line between Paul and John as a songwriting team. Now, that session is also very, very important for another reason. It's where George first interacted with Phil Spector. So, contrary to what you might think, it wasn't the reproduction of Let It Be that put George in first contact with Phil, but it was this January 1970 session, which George does appear on. George was evidently intrigued by the, quote, little dude running around telling people what to go do with their instruments, (laughs) (laughs) and learned as much as he could from Phil during that session. Now, I think that is fascinating because it wasn't like George didn't have producers around during the Beatle years, but as we know, he was maybe treated as somewhat of a second-class citizen by not just his bandmates, but by George Martin. And... It's because of that that maybe George Martin was more reticent to teach Paul his tricks or to 
experiment with John, but maybe not always to show George how it was done. So it's interesting that George looks at Phil Spector and suddenly starts to think about production differently. Yeah. And Instant Karma is a, you know, it's a big wall of sound is what it is. (laughs) It's really a huge sounding record with really only a few instrumental parts, but much overdubbing on those parts. So we get the huge piano sound. We get the big reverberant sound, very characteristic Phil Spector reverberant sound on Instant Karma. So it's interesting that George had that experience, heard that sound, and wanted to work with him. Yes. Since, as we will discuss later, Phil Spector kind of, you know, flew the coop eventually (laughs) (laughs) on All Things Must Pass, and George ended up producing it largely by himself. But I think at a point where he was already locked in with a Phil Spector sound. Right. And that's a common occurrence for Phil because he did the same thing during the rock and roll sessions and the same thing happened with John Lennon stepped in, had to finish the thing. And it usually involves him flaming out and either like horribly injuring himself or others. And the story of him leaving all things must pass. I never quite knew some of the detail of that. And it is hilarious. Unlike the other times where he actually killed people, you know, all that, Specterness aside, you know, he obviously is legendary for his abilities. And it must have been cool for George to see that different side of music after having been so insulated by George Martin for so long. Now, George had produced other people. He produced Jackie Lomax and, and he produced a record by Doris Troy and other Apple artists. And so he was in the realm of production. But I think it was here and especially in the context of the Beatles fracture solidifying, if that makes any sense. Yeah. And, you know, Phil Spector is one of the early examples of the sort of producer artist, which we kind of take for granted now that there's the producer artist. But Phil Spector was a producer who had a, a sound. And sometimes his the records he produced were more about him than about the artist involved. It was so much about that Phil Spector sound and that kind of craft he applied in the studio. So, you know, that's a very... That's a very imposing figure to have as your second producer after George Martin. Well, George brought those skills to the Billy Preston record he was recording in the spring called Encouraging Words, which he produced and and learned, you know, the vast majority of skills implemented on that record from Spectre. George also brought two tracks for Billy in those sessions, All Things Must Pass, which he ran through with the Beatles, um, to semi-serious detail during the Get Back sessions, and a new track he had written titled My Sweet Lord. Now, interestingly, a companion tune to My Sweet Lord titled Sing One for the Lord, co-written by Preston, was cut for the Encouraging Words LP, and this tune was more of a straightforward gospel piece but as George's biographer Simon Lang puts it, represented a manifesto for George's solo career. Now, I don't know about you, but I am very fresh to that Billy Preston album. I think I may have heard it once in the past. So Sing One for the Lord is an interesting cut, and it's interesting that his biographer places it in such a pivotal point in George's solo career. What do you think? Should we drop a little bit of that in here? Yeah, let's drop a little bit of that in. Sometimes when 
So in addition to George's work with Billy, he was also growing closer with Bob Dylan. We discussed last episode that he had jammed with Dylan in the winter of 68 in Dylan's home in Woodstock, New York. And during that visit had cut and written a few tracks with Dylan. But it was in the spring and early summer of 1970, so post-Billy Preston, and right around the time where Paul formally made the announcement, I'm leaving the Beatles, that George got together with Dylan again, and the two collaborated on a recording session for a song which we'll get to when we do the track by track. But it's interesting that the slide guitar first shows up in George's work, at least in that signature way we hear on All Things Must Pass, first during these Dylan sessions, which went on to be unreleased, by the way. Both Harrison and Dylan felt that the products of their recording were not suitable for release, and so we'll get into that again a little bit later on in the show. But it's interesting that those two got together, started establishing all this stuff like George's slide sound, and then it went shelved for a long time well they were just getting started they were trying some new stuff now i've heard this stuff and it's actually i don't know i find it pretty interesting i'm not like the biggest dylan fan in the world i don't know how you feel about dylan chris i feel pretty well about dylan but with a lot of caveats i see dylan as this great you know lyricist and orator but not as a great musician exactly I mean, his songs aren't rich with, I mean, they're all either strophic form, just a series of verses or a simple verse chorus ver. You almost never in his whole career get a bridge. Once in a while you do. Yeah. And you don't get fancy chords. In fact, there's this whole conversation between Dylan and Harrison about I'd have you anytime where George Harrison's kind of showing him, oh yeah, major seventh chords. See, <laughs> you know, so Dylan didn't even know how to use a major seventh chord. But still, I think Dylan's achievement, you know, insofar as my opinion matters at all, <laughs> I think Dylan's achievement as a lyricist and as a sort of speaker, as a sort of voice for his own lyrics is just huge. So, Do you have a yeah. Dylan sweet spot? Yeah, it's the 60s. It's, it's mid-60s to mid-70s. Yeah. Um, I think the sweet spot ends maybe with Desire. For me and what is that 76 something like that desire was the one that cracked him open for me i had always struggled with dylan and when i heard isis for the first time i thought oh mm. my god yeah and i was taken aback by how much i loved it and then i thought wow maybe there's something here and i lived with a um at the time with a dylan super fan and he turned me on to talking world war three blues which is from one of those early dylan records early 60s I- i'm thinking mozambique actually oh, yeah. has a bridge there's a bridge in that. <laughs> whatever that last song, what is that last song on Infidels? That one has a bridge too, I think. Yeah. It's a good song. 
Robert Plant would not last a minute with Dylan in the studio, uh, which is an <laughs> oblique reference to Robert Plant, Robert Plant screaming, where's the bridge? Where's the bridge? <laughs> Has anybody seen the bridge? Yeah. So anyway, I, I really dug it once I kind of framed it more like what you're saying, more like, oh, this is kind of, a, it's almost like listening to a speech or something. Yeah. And when I heard Talking World War Three Blues for the first time, I was just cracking up laughing because it's a hilarious song. And I don't know how familiar you are, and I know we're off on a bit of a tangent at the moment, but I don't know how familiar you are with um, the Bo Burnham record that he put out, that he recorded during the pandemic. It was, it's a comedy record, but it actually has some of that early Dylan in it where the songs are beautiful and tragic, but also kind of funny. And I think that might have been the attraction, or part of the attraction with George and Dylan, which is that humor. As we know, George was really, like, humor was very important to him. Well, and Bob's songs are often just hilarious, especially the ones from the 60s on Highway 61 Revisited and on Blonde on Blonde. They're they're pretty funny. Like the absurdity is pretty funny, you know, just non sequiturs. And people have analyzed them to death, but I think he was actually having a lot of fun with absurdity and non sequiturs, actually. Yeah. Just a lot of straight surrealism in there. Yeah. So anyway, um, that trip with Dylan was very formative for George too, especially coming off the heels of the Beatles' actual formal split. The messaging around that time was a little complicated because, you know, Paul never actually said the Beatles are breaking up in that announcement. It was simply interpreted that way. And you hear in the very early interviews following Paul's announcement, I think George is even in New York looking over New York's Apple offices at the time. And you hear him say things like, well, it would be very selfish for the Beatles to break up. I think he said something to the, the effect of, flowers are beautiful, but a garden is, you know, sublime or something like that, you know, where it's just like saying, why would we rob ourselves and the world of what we can do together? But pretty not long after that, um, the rot with Paul started to set in, especially with the lawsuits starting to fly at that time. And so George very solidly takes John Lennon's side in that split and that that's evidenced through various things, not just some of the recorded conversations happening between George, Alan Klein, and John at that period, but also like later in 71, obviously, George plays on How Do You Sleep. So it's, it's just, it's a shame that it, it came to such a head like that. But, you know, I'm, this is, this podcast isn't to litigate the Beatles breakup, but simply to paint the picture of like, hey, this was a very turbulent time and no one was really sure what was going to stick and what wasn't. Yeah, I certainly remember seeing the Imagine credits as a kid, you know, having the inner sleeve there and seeing George Harrison's picture and thinking, hmm, so the Beatles aren't completely broken up. I mean, John and George are cool. <laughs> like right. Something's going on here. And I see Ringo's name on All Things Must Pass. And I didn't know the whole, I didn't know at the time the depth of the acrimony between George and Paul. Yeah, and there's that quote that gets flung around on social media and stuff, which is, you know, I people, if you haven't already found this out for yourselves, please take memes with a grain of salt, especially when it comes to somebody's like image and then a like a quote of John Lennon next to it. But there is that thing where George actually did say this, where he said, I would play in a band with John Lennon again, but I would never play in a band with Paul McCartney again. And he said that toward the later, or like the latter half of the mid-70s. And so he was in a very different place at that moment. And I think he was looking back with just some objective, hey, this worked about a creative relationship and this didn't at that mm. moment. But yeah. we do know that Paul, you know, was very overbearing 
at times and that affected George and look, people grow up and they grow differently and they grow apart sometimes. But and, and despite you know. all the talk about George being, you know, the real musician in the Beatles, I think those of us who know the Beatles pretty well probably would take issue with that. I mean, part of what I saw happening in Get Back was that Paul was just further along as a musician and he was frustrated with the other Beatles. Yeah. That's bound to get me in some trouble saying that, but <laughs> sorry, everybody. <laughs> but really, it, it looks to me as if Paul's impatient that the other guys don't catch on quite as fast, you know. And that's a personality thing that McCartney, yeah, it is. Yeah. you know, miscalculated. I, I mean, we could talk about this all day, and I would, but yeah. Yeah. I don't blame Paul for the split, and I don't blame Paul for feeling frustrated in that moment, but he could have gone about it in different ways, you know, and ah, it's different. You know, you think about, like, these kids... They grew up together. They knew each other when they were, what, 13, 14? I mean, at that point, like Lennon says and Lennon remembers, it's like we knew everybody's game. Like we knew it back to front. And I think everybody was ready for different horizons. And, you know, Paul's announcement kind of just put pen to paper on it. And there it was. So, yeah. And it's interesting that George was in New York with Dylan for that particular moment. And, Upon flying back, I think it was the next day, George demoed all of the songs or a vast majority of the songs and more for Phil Spector for a George album. Now, we know George had talked about doing a George album prior to this. In fact, they talk about it a lot in Get Back, and the Niagara Reels go into more detail on it. So solo albums were kind of being floated at that time, but I think George took this moment as saying, nope, now's the time. I'm going to get this done. This is a two-record set. It's Well, it's a three-record set, but I mean, the main body of the album is, is two records. That's already a lot of songs. There were a bunch more songs. So that's, it's kind of interesting that it was such an outpouring. He had songs to burn. <laughs> he had a lot. Yeah, they were just coming out of every, every which way. So he demoed the entire record for Phil Spector on May 27th, 1970, like I said, upon his return to London from the Dylan Sessions, and some have interpreted George's use of Spectre as a subtle dig at McCartney, who had been very recently enraged by Spectre's production work on the Let It Be album. Uh, maybe in some sort of a, like a slight passive way, it could have been interpreted as like, hey, Phil's the new friend of John and George, so maybe that has elements of a dig at McCartney. But I think it was just because it goes back to that instant karma session. He just he saw how Phil worked, thought, okay, well, I'll try that on my album kind of thing and, and learn what he could. And, and I don't it. know. I don't think Phil Spector did such a bad job on Let It Be, given what he had to work with. I agree that some of the stuff on Naked sounds cooler, but what was he going to do? You know, he had all this messy material. He had to salvage a few songs and, you know, he went with the orchestra. Okay, sorry, but <laughs> it's not as if that was unprecedented in the Beatles' work, you know? <laughs> I mean, I think history has swung a little bit on that particular issue. I agree. Like, and all you have to do is listen to the Glenn Johns version, which they very graciously included high def of on the Let It Be box set. And you're like, oh, this wouldn't have been good to release at all. Because Glenn was going by what the Beatles had asked for, which is like, okay, I want fly on the wall, no bullshit. I want, you know, just to, let's hear the false starts and stuff. And then when they heard that, they're like, oh, no, 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 no. We can't release this. I'm comfortable saying that all things must pass and ram and imagine, you know, all better than let it be. 
these are better albums. So I, I don't know. I think Phil Spector took a, a weak batch of songs, you know, weak by Beatles standards. Okay. Not that weak, but still a comparatively weak batch of songs and did something with it. I could see George not being, I mean, Paul was the one who was upset. You know, right. I could see George thinking, well, this is a perfectly good producer. <laughs> yeah, well, because Paul's songs weren't weak. Because he was on a hot, he was on the biggest hot streak of his life, I think, at that sure. moment. Sure, yeah. And so, right, yeah, going into that seventy seventy one period where he just wrote everything, right? right. Yeah. So he's he's got his A game there, and he that like you talk about him being frustrated. Oh my god, that must have been so frustrating. He's on this hot streak, and everybody else is either strung out or dragging their feet or whatever, or not writing. You know, Lennon Lennon yeah. trots out "Child of Nature." Come on, dude, like. <laughs> Seriously, yeah. you want to re-record yeah. across the universe? Why don't you get your shit together, my dude? Like he's, he said from his high horse. <laughs> yeah, his podcasting high horse. <laughs> but and then and then but the tragedy is though George was bringing good material. The Beatles just didn't give a shit, you know? I mean, he brought them all things must pass. They could have They had their dynamic. It wasn't going to change at that point, right. you know? The right. the the two song allotment wasn't going to change for George. So that brings us to the recording sessions for All Things Must Pass, which began the day after George demoed it for Phil, which is really rapid fire. Kind of interesting given George's, not laissez-faire attitude, but it seems like maybe McCartney was a bit more of the workman of the group, but that's a fast, like, okay, let's do this. There's some urgency to that decision. And the story goes when George demoed the record for Spectre on the 27th, one of the bits of feedback he got was the idea that he needed more confidence in his voice and overall vocal performance, which Spectre told him would make mixing the album easier, which is kind of funny. That, of course, Phil was just thinking of it from his own selfish point of view. <laughs> but it's interesting because George may still have been in the space where his vocals were slightly looked down upon, you know, as compared yeah. to Lennon and McCartney. And he may not have even given them the proper time at that point that they needed as a solo artist, when it's just George, like, you know, you kind of have to sell it a bit more than when you're surrounded by a band with all these harmonies and stuff. So that I found particularly interesting in going through this research on this album, the idea that George actually had to find his solo voice and do it in short order. And Simon Lang talks a little bit about the fact that George had a longstanding insecurity about his voice, feeling that it could kind of just go any moment. Yes. <laughs> and it's, it does sound a bit, it's just not to knock George, who has, of course, a wonderful voice. But I was listening to All Things Must Pass and thinking that at times, that, you know, he, he just sounds, you know, a few hours less of sleep away from falling into 1974, you know, strep throat vocal. Like, at right. any moment, he always sounds as if he's pushing hard, you know. He doesn't have that easy vocal elegance that Paul or John had. But he has a unique voice. He has this wonderful, warm, very but very nasally, you know. His speaking voice is nasally, too. You, you almost feel like to do a George Harrison, you need to hold your nose, you know? <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> well, the Liverpudlian accent doesn't really help with the, the, and... John has a bit of that, too. Paul does not. But that nasally thing. But even so, I, even George has a wonderful voice. But yeah, to, to have to find it you know, in that context. And apparently he was very perfectionistic about just spending many hours recording the vocals for All Things Must Pass and getting them right. And except for a few moments where he is a little overwhelmed by the just the grandeur of the production, I think for the most part, he's fine. It works great. So George's voice, and again, I'm a big George Harrison fan. I would 
categorize his voice as being, I think, the thing I like the least about his songs and overall musicianship. Okay. I think it sounds very good in certain contexts and under certain producers. I think Phil got a good sound out of George. Mm -hmm. I think that Jeff Lynne eventually would get a really good sound out of George. And I think that there's maybe a handful of other instances. But I do sympathize with him in that, as John said in the Lennon Remembers interviews, he wasn't even a singer when they started. So much like the songwriting, he did all of this in the public eye and developed it all Beatles boot camp. in the public eye, as opposed to John and Paul, who had been developing it much earlier than that. But he didn't even sing when the Beatles started out. So I don't want to come down hard on the voice because I do like it, but I just, I don't know. It's, it's not, I don't feel like it's as effortless or as um, compelling as other parts of his music. It works best in really intimate production context. So I think he sounds great on George Harrison 79. That, yes, Russ Teitelman got a good sound out of it too. Yeah, where he's he's close to the mic, the production allows him to be quieter and be closer to the mic and it has this intimacy that that really works. Whereas he's not a great belter. And of course John was a trained screamer. <laughs> and you know, he could really scream, you know, he had like that Will on his Richard. business card, trained yeah, screamer. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> trained screamer. And of course Paul could could belt in a really clear way, you know, to have those two. Again, it's just so tricky being um, overshadowed by these guys. Yeah. And this thing about George kind of learning his craft in public, that's happened to other artists. You know, I was thinking of Simon and Garfunkel, of course, Michael Jackson. There you have know, been yeah. quite a few people who kind of learned in public and, you know, some of their sort of adolescent efforts are there. Uh, certainly with Simon and Garfunkel, there's some painful, really cheesy adolescent stuff on some of their early uh, early records, but they weren't in the same, you know, in the position of being in the same band with the John or a Paul. They weren't competing in in the public light or being overshadowed, you know, in a public context. So it's even there, it's hard to find a direct comparison for George, you know. Yeah, as Randy Bachman put it, he was between two mountains. And on the one hand, you get a master class that way. And on the other hand, you get treated like a second class citizen. <laughs> and I'm I'm using generalities here. Like obviously he wasn't always that. I mean, George George contributed so much and with credit by the other Beatles to the Beatles as a structure or as a thing. Sure. But yeah, it's just challenging for him on a couple levels. So so I'm gonna talk a bit about the orchestration on All Things Must Pass, but the reason I'm doing that is to highlight this fellow named John Barham. Who we addressed a little in the last episode. He he made an appearance on Wonderwall. And, That's right. Yeah. Barham was one of George's closest friends and confidants during his exploration of Indian music in the mid-60s and, you know, the religion and culture associated with it. And, you know, because he too was a white guy who found kinship in that, not only culture, but that music. And so Barham was one of the people that George brought in as a confidant and somebody he trusted to orchestrate all things must pass and interestingly enough i didn't know this barham was also an arranger on portions of let it be the phil specter version and i actually don't know which ones those are but it this and the specter part of it helped marry in my own brain let it be as a project and all things must pass in ways in which i hadn't up until this point hmm. but they are very connected and obviously they come off the heels of one another so i guess that makes sense but I find the orchestration on this album overall, and we'll go through it track by track, but to be quite beautiful, actually. I mean, it's a- It's beautiful, and the way it blends with the the other orchestra, which is the rock orchestra, because yeah. this is kind of the, the 
precursor to rockestra, <laughs> right? I mean, <laughs> this is like a, a guitar section, like you have a violin section, you know, you have a bunch of guitarists playing the same thing. And I thought that Barham's orchestrations, I just think they blend really well with that already existing giant band. Really good. Sometimes you have, like on the song, All Things Must Pass, you have Barham's horns and George Harrison's slide guitar doubling each other. And it just gives it this unique sound. Yeah. Well, that's an example where I think the orchestration not saves it, but like adds so much to the track, especially when you hear those boiled down versions from the Let It Be sessions where you're just like, this needed more care and it got the care, thank God, <laughs> on this album. Now, on the topic of production on this album, I do want to read this quote from George. This is from the liner notes from the 30th anniversary reissue of All Things Must Pass. One which is not beloved by audiophiles because it's kind of loud and a little zingy. But in any case, uh, the liner notes here, there's a quote from George, which the liner notes were written for this reissue. I still like the songs on the album and believe they continue to outlive the style in which they were recorded. It was difficult to resist remixing every track. <laughs> All these years later, I would like to liberate some of the songs from the big production that seemed appropriate at the time, but now seem a bit over the top with the reverb and the wall of sound. Still, it was an important album for me and a timely vehicle for all the songs I'd been writing during the last period with the Beatles. First of all, I think it's kind of charmingly humble. Still, it was an important album for me. (laughs) 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 That's all things must pass. It's an important album for a lot of us. But, you know, this bit of regret that he has about the production. I don't know how I feel about that because I really love the production. Although I'm on record on Take It Away quite a few times, preferring a more stripped down version of something. I also think it's the easiest way to be cool to just say, Oh, it's overproduced. Everything's overproduced as if, you know, if you try too hard, that's not cool enough. And I think it's okay to try hard. Sometimes I think sometimes it pays off. Some more can be more sometimes. And not every song on this album is huge wall of sound behind that locked door. And if not for you and others are actually modestly produced. So I'm cool with the Phil Spector bigness, or as it eventually becomes, I guess, the George Harrison bigness, you know, whoever's responsible for the bigness, for the grandeur of this sound with five guitarists doubling on a part, well, quintupling on a part, as the case may be, and, you know, two drummers and two bassists and all this. I think it's fantastic. And I think it's warranted given the ambition of the album, given the ambition of the lyrics and its themes and its role in George's career at that time, bring it on. I don't have the feeling <laughs> of it being overproduced. Uh-oh, sounds like you're going to disagree. Uh, well, no, I have a couple things to say to that. I think um, the scale of Spectre's production is part of the statement that the album yes. maybe may made intentionally or not which is that I am here and I am just as great an artist as Lennon McCartney. I mean, now, I don't think George was necessarily out to do that, but I think, you know, in the back of his mind, there must have, you know, been some lingering resentment there, or at least I would assume there would be. And so for this album, it had to be big because it had to show like the full range of what he was capable of. And so when I look at it from that vantage point, I think it's appropriate. Yeah. I am shocked to hear you 
defend the production because most I found most Beatle fans that I run into don't like it and generally say that it was sounds dated or something like that which is kind of what George is implying there. And you know what? Honestly, those Beatles fans who would say that are probably just kind of towing the party line anyway, because if it came out of a Beatles mouth and that becomes part of the narrative, it's like... There are things that Beatles fans think they're supposed to think. Yeah. Sometimes. Sometimes. Yeah. I don't... I don't know how I feel about it. I do think it sounds dated at times, and, and it sounds a bit overwhelming in places. Well, it sounds dated to me in a way that I like, as in, can we go back to that? <laughs> <laughs> if that's dated, let's get in the fucking time machine already. You know? Well, you know, it's, well, I'll point to Bangladesh and say, okay, Awaiting on You All is one of my favorite songs of all time, let alone George of songs of all time. It's a little cluttered. The production's a little cluttered on that one. Yeah, so you hear it in Bangladesh... And aside from the fact that he forgets some of the lyrics, it's actually kind of, oh, hey, this song could be this other thing. Mm. I'm not really one for go back and change it and stuff like that. Like, I, it is what it is because it, it is what it had to be in that moment. So I'm not really like the second guesser in that sense. I guess all I would say is that while I think Phil got some great sounds out of George, it's not maybe my favorite approach necessarily Hmm. but then again i'm a jeff lynn defender and there's a lot of people out there who think jeff lynn put too much jeff lynn on georgia's stuff and i think jeff actually accentuated it that's a discussion for another episode obviously but okay that's a fierce argument that we'll have in a few months (laughs) 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 but i don't know so he he added uh, phil added an extra little degree of commerciality to it probably which george Hmm. needed i think just on an objective level and he also had uh, gravitas and notoriety uh, aside from his eccentricities he was a known quantity as you say a, a, uh, an artist producer so I don't know that, that's kind of where I come down on it. I'm not like a huge fan of it but this album's songs either despite it or because of it are, are just so incredibly strong in the end I don't really care So we'll talk about the recording of the record here. Delaney Bramlett, who we touched on a bit last time, said of the sessions that, quote, George was very businesslike in the studio. Sure, he got tired sometimes and always had a joke, but when it came back to the one, two, three, four, he was very businesslike. He was a very good producer and very well-mannered in the studio, and people respected him for that. George would run through the cuts once or twice to show the session players the changes in the chords and things like that, and that's how generally the songs came about in the studio. Joey Mullen from Badfinger said that once George realized that the band Badfinger wasn't going to treat him like a beetle, but as a human and a fellow musician, that's when George doubled down on Badfinger's involvement on the record. So often what you'll hear on this record is Badfinger as a primary source of guitar sounds and overall percussion, things like that. And it almost seemed like he was deploying Badfinger like his own little private you know, Apple weapon or something <laughs> as needed. Uh, of course, they show up in the concert for Bangladesh. And what I found the most interesting about this is he built them a little box in the studio, like a yeah. wood box <laughs> that he shoved Badfinger into and mm-hmm. uh, and had them be contribute to the sound that way, I guess, to prevent bleed or I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it isolates them from the rest of the group, but it also allows all those guitars to resonate inside that box those two or three guitars to resonate inside the box, which gives you part of that great crisp guitar sound that you're getting on several of the tracks on All Things Must Pass. Yeah. 
So we alluded to Phil Spector's influence and his exit. Klaus Vorman said of Spector's style that he would command that wall of sound not be done through studio trickery, but through literally tons of instruments playing at once in unison, like a gigantic symphony orchestra, which is what you were talking about with Rockestra. Yeah. Klaus said that George's style and Phil's was generally at odds with one another, George preferring a looser, more down-home style affair, and Phil going for that over-the-top scale. John Barham said of this that Phil was respected by musicians, but he didn't connect as a colleague. He remained distant and authoritarian. He was a complex guy who went everywhere with a bodyguard. (laughs) There were times (laughs) when George just sat back and let Phil take control. Once, Phil gave me, John Barham, a conducting lesson in front of my musicians, whereas George would coax and encourage the sounds he wanted out of people. So there's that difference in style and approach. Mm. And the really funny cherry on this particular Sunday is Phil's exit from the sessions after having shown up to EMI absolutely plastered, falling down and breaking his arm, which irritated George. And (laughs) from that point on, George finished the record himself, which I think is Phil, after breaking his arm, he had additional problems, I think alcohol related and ended up he yeah. was chiming in like with notes and stuff as it goes on, like, listening to mix downs and writing notes and sending them back and stuff like that. My favorite quote, I don't, I don't remember who said it. It was, maybe it was an I Me Mine, but someone was being quoted as saying that Phil Spector couldn't get started till he had about 18 cherry brandies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You hear about some of this rock star behavior and you just say, how did anything get done? That's a real thing though. Like there's a science behind it where I forget what it's called. Some listener will write in either confirming or denying this, but there's like a sliding scale, almost like a um, a lift you get if you're a, of a certain skill doing a certain job. When you're drinking, it sort of starts going on autopilot and you actually become more productive, more productive, more productive. And then there's a steep drop off at a certain point. Yeah. Right. And that's a thing, which I only know because I was describing my work habits to a friend one time and he's like, oh yeah, drinking, (laughs) yeah, alcoholism, yeah, that could be real productive on occasion. I was like, oh, (laughs) Well, was it Bon Scott of ACDC that had the reputation of like slamming a whole fifth of whiskey and then snorting a couple lines of Coke and then he's ready to sing? Wow. How does anything get done? I mean, I've read the stories about Graham Parsons, who was really a heavy drinker and drug user, and it just sounds as if they had to wheel him into the studio sometimes, but then he had some beautiful song that he would, he'd eventually get a take, you know? Yeah. And we have that, but boy, falling apart the rest of the time. Now, Lennon talks about that, you know, in relation to Cold Turkey, I think, you know, where he talks about, you know, the pain that people who live in the public eye have to go through and that's why substance abuse is so pervasive in that atmosphere yeah. Yeah. because you know i think he was talking he first learned it from some from some horn section on an early beatles tour where he was asking the person and i'm, I'm butchering the the quote but it it is real it's a thing how do you do it how do you get through it and oh no you know what it wasn't john lennon it was keith richards <laughs> That's right. That's more like it. Yeah, Keith <laughs> Keith was talking to some old blues guy about it. And he was saying, how do you do it? How do you kind of function on the tour? It's so stressful. How do you do it? And the guy was just like, oh, you, you get shit-faced. Oh, 
And then Keith was like, well, that sounds like that's for me. (laughs) 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 And then suddenly Keith is, you know, doing heroin, like a lot of heroin during Exile on Main Street would pass out at the microphone, then wake up, call the band back in and say, I've got it and lay down this amazing thing, you know, so it's just how people cope, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. Well, it is about pressure. And sometimes it starts with injuries, right? With Michael Jackson, it was an injury. He went on opiates. Then he found that opiates were the cure for a lot of his problems besides just the pain. And they were the physical pain and so on and so forth. Or people start taking uppers, right? Like the Beatles did. Perform when they're, yeah, when they're barely awake. And that's often, I think, how it starts. It, It really is coping with the pressure. talk a little bit about the album release it was released on november 30th 1970 so again by modern artist standards that's not a terribly long time to be laboring on a record you know it's a few months but george had it out in time for christmas of course released on apple records and was a co-production as we mentioned between george and phil Spector. basic tracks were laid down by the following group of musicians obviously george Klaus Vorman, old buddy Klaus is back in the picture. Bobby Whitlock, Spooky Tooth's Gary Wright, who would go on to have his own successful solo career later with uh, Dreamweaver. Yeah. Dreamweaver. Yeah. Great song. Billy Preston, Carl Rattle, Jim Gordon, Eric Clapton, Ringo Starr, Bobby Keys, Jim Price, and the band Badfinger with additional parts by Gary Brooker of Procol Harum. And then there was additional instrumentation that was only discussed later because the sessions had kind of an ambient sort of wander in, wander out kind of feel. But they also featured performances by Dave Mason, Tony Ashton of Ashton Gardner and Dyke, Peter Frampton, young Peter Frampton, and of course, Phil Collins. And there's a really funny story about Phil Collins talking to George about this when George was doing the All Things Must Pass. I think it was during the All Things Must Pass reissue in uh, 2000, where (laughs) Phil had sent some letter to George or something to that effect and saying, oh, hey, you know, I don't know if you remember this, but actually I was in one of those sessions and I was doing this such and such a percussion part and things like that. And George called him and said, listen, I found it and um, I'm going to send you the, I'm going to send you the take from that day. And Hmm. listen, I know why you weren't credited up until this point, because it sounds really, really bad. And Phil Collins is like, oh my God, Phil Collins is like mortified. And he sends him this cut and it's this worst sounding percussion that you've ever heard in your life. Just off time and just ridiculously awful. And Phil was like so embarrassed. And he got, so George calls him after he sends him that track. And George goes, uh, you know, I never found the day you were recording, right? We just we just went in and recorded like the worst sounding percussion, so we That's could send that to you. Good. Pretty and good. And that joke. is awesome. <laughs> you know, I was watching the the Dick Cavett interview for seventy one, <laughs> uh, which is right around the time of yeah. the, the Bangladesh concert. And George is really funny. He acts as if he really doesn't want to talk and doesn't want to be there, but then he's really quite witty. Yeah, he's hilarious. Is there a slight undercurrent of hostility between you and uh, no, no, other members? Really, of your, no, you can John, tell me. Anyway. You know, I wouldn't, I'm not going to tell anybody. <laughs> no, I, I just thought I'd take the opportunity and promote his record for him. Mm-hmm. War is over if you want it. Happy Christmas. Yeah. And Apple Records. Well, are, are you in any sense in contact with each other? Um, 
I mean, yeah, I saw him last night actually at the premiere of Raga, which what? is what we should talk about maybe. Okay. <laughs> but I mean, what did you say? Did I you... said, "Hi, hello." Yeah. Do you have said, writers who think of these things, or yeah, do you just yeah. have them ready and you can just yeah. snap them right out yeah. like that? We have writers home, and, and rooms what, full of them. <laughs> what did he come back with right away? With, hi. <laughs> Gee, this ought to be... Uh, was there more, or did that well, just go on? You've good. got real boring people, you know, to talk to on your show. I'm probably yeah. the biggest bore you've ever had on the show. Really? Mm. You think? Yeah. Well, I'll be the judge of oh. that. Listen, I'll tell you. Well, I don't really... You know, they asked me, do you want to come on the Dick Cavett show? And I said, uh, yeah, i got nothing to talk about, really. Yeah. They said, well, think of something. You know, anything. So I thought, okay, we'll go and talk about Raga, which is... Uh, Film. Mm. You mean that's it? When we're done talking about that, then... Then I go. Yeah. You don't like to talk, then? Well, not really. Sometimes, if there's something to say, but there's yeah. really nothing to say these days. I can turn it on, and I, it's why he, I think, said the quote is that the spirit of the Beatles lived on in the 70s, not through a musician, but through Python. Mm. Yeah. And it explains, you know, his vantage point. If that's how he's thinking, and we know it was, that explains a lot about how he viewed the world which was, you know, it's so awful that you have to laugh. (laughs) (laughs) The trappings of the material world were so disgusting to George that he had no choice but to erect these walls of humor to, like, talk about coping mechanism to cope (laughs) with it, you know? What I found interesting was that George, and you mentioned this earlier, George largely provided his own backing vocals for the record with some assistance from some others, but mostly it was him layering... The backing vocals himself. Right. And slowing the tape down to record the higher parts. Really interesting. Yeah, I always noticed that the background vocals sounded a bit female. And sometimes I think there are some women on there, right? But yeah, most of the time, you know, it would be this weird mix of female and something not quite right. And it turns out, yeah, he was, which, I mean, the Beatles did stuff like that. But he was, you know, the parts that were too high to sing or that were at least too high to sing loudly he could just slow the tape down, sing it at a lower pitch, and then they play it back, and it's a speeded-up version of him. Yeah. Yeah, that covers the higher parts. Yeah, Never knew that. I think that's, that's <laughs> a lot of what he spent his time on in the overdubbing stage. Yeah, in all my beatle years, I, I never really realized that. Because like you said, it does sound a little like R&B backup singers or something like that. I think there are a couple of women on some of the tracks. We'll, I guess we'll get to that when we dig in, but... Mostly it's him, and it's credited to, what, the George O'Hara Smith singers? <laughs> <laughs> well, we know Clapper's on a couple of those, yes, too. Yes, that's I right. Yeah, a couple of people, so. a couple of males, and I th- maybe a couple of women, I'm not sure. And then the last thing I'll say about the release is the cover, which is a photo of George in Friar Park. And this is another thing I never, ever realized. In all my years of Beatleness, the four gnomes that he's over is is a reference to the Beatles is him separating himself from the Beatles and depicting his other fellow former fabs as kind of ridiculous garden gnomes. Mm, (laughs) Um, Interesting. I didn't know that. Lennon remembers is something I return to a lot, not because it's particularly factually rich, but I just find it captivating to listen to John Lennon talk for hours. Mm -hmm. And the audio version is, is what I prefer to listen to when I do it. And in it, He's very, very dismissive of all things must pass. He he kind of says of it like, well, it's nice if you like that sort of thing. Um, which is like, dude, come on. 
But some have pointed to, you know, George's kind of mockery of Beatleness as maybe one of the things that had made Lennon less than receptive to dealing with it. He's also probably jealous because it performed so much better than Plastic Ono Band did, and both were released around the same time, I think within a couple weeks of each other. Yeah. Uh, the other thing about this record, of course, is that it's a three LP set. And instead of doing a double gatefold like you would normally do, George specially commissioned this box thing and these sleeves and stuff and made it this really big feeling, cool looking object. Yes. I've got my own copy, uh, you know, one that I unearthed from Amoeba for whatever it was, you know, $25, $30 or something, but from the time. So I could kind of interact with it in that way. And it came with this poster. And Mm -hmm. I mentioned the album was out in time for Christmas but this was a triple record set in this beautiful big box. And so not only was it um, an amazing record with an amazing single that was about to come out, and My Sweet Lord was about to be a big smash, very top of 71, end of 70 into 71. But you have this very expensive thing. So all these Beatle fans are out there buying this very <laughs> expensive thing. So that made that probably helped the mortgage on Fire Park, I would imagine. <laughs> it is. It's a nice package, right? I mean, the inner sleeves are made out of this embossed paper very pretty and different colors and yeah you get all the credits on the inside and then that poster is huge yeah it's huge and grim like it's it's, a cool poster i love that picture you know he looks very meditative even more than on the cover i don't know how you feel about this i never quite liked the cover because the black and white as a kid anyway kind of turned me off to it and stuff and i especially hated that 30th anniversary reissue where they made it colorized although it is very funny that george went in and added all of these modern things to it to point out the absurdity <laughs> of modern life like you put the like smokestacks and stuff yes I'm, I'm looking at it right now and it's got 89 cents a gallon for gas <laughs> <laughs> that sounds pretty good just right across from some some nuclear power plant like three nuclear power plants side by side or something like a whole row of nuclear power plants <laughs> yeah just, anyway. i mean it's funny I just listened recently to Save the World. It came on on a shuffle, and I was just laughing at, at you know, George's interpretation of modern life. Just like, why? Why would you do? Why would you ever leave your home? <laughs> Everything is so bad <laughs> out there. <laughs> Let me in here. I know I've been here. Track one, I'd Have You Any Time. Written with Bob Dylan. For a lot of these songs, I should tell our listeners, I used the I, Me, Mine book, which was George's song autobiography uh, released in the late 70s, just to give a bit of background, uh, like I did in the last episode. So George said of this track, it was started in America in Woodstock. He was invited there by the band. It was Thanksgiving time, and I just produced a Jackie Lomax album directly after the Beatles' White Album. 
Bob Dylan had gone through the thing of breaking his neck in a motorcycle accident and being out of commission for a time. He got himself back together and had finished Nashville Skyline shortly before I arrived there. I was hanging out at his house with him, Sarah, and the kids. He seemed very nervous, and I felt a little uncomfortable. It seemed strange, especially as he was in his own home. Anyway, on the third day, we got the guitars out and things loosened up, and I'm saying to him, write me some words. Thinking of Johnny's in the basement, mixing up the medicine type of thing. And he was saying, show me some chords. How do you get those tunes? I started playing chords like major sevenths, diminished and augmented chords, and the song appeared as I played the opening chord, G major seventh. The first thing I thought of was that first line. I was saying, come on, write me some words. And he wrote the bridge, all I have is yours, etc. Beautiful. And that was that. As George says, this was written in November 68. The finished studio version's electric solo, interestingly enough, is not George at all, but old Clapper, Eric Clapton, which is kind of sad because (laughs) I always thought that that was George opening the album. And it's kind of the first thing you hear when you crack it open. It sure sounds like George. Well, he's doing an impression (laughs) of George. So it's kind of him in a sense, but disappointing actually to me personally that it's not George that opens the album, but old Clapper. And speaking of which, this was the album in which Derek and the Dominoes kind of formed because all four members of that group, Clapton, this guy Bobby Whitlock, who plays harmonium on this track and another few tracks on the album, and Carl Rattle, along with drummer Jim Gordon, were the uh, members of Derek and the Dominoes. One of the other sources we're using for a lot of this is Simon Lang's book, The Music of George Harrison. And he makes an interesting point about this following on from what you were just reading. Evidently, Harrison's harmonic palette was broader than Dylan's at this time, as the song is set in lush major sevenths. He's learned from the Beatles who used a bit of extended or you know chromatic harmony. He's learned that from them, but he uses it in a slightly more bald way, a more direct way. Yeah. So he just sets the song on a seventh chord like that rather than have it pass through a seventh chord as the Beatles might be more likely to do and really base it on that sound, that dissonance between, you know, like a C and a B. It's a beautiful way to start the album. Big, lush, giant guitar sound, major seventh chord, and a mellow song. Now, I'd like to just build on what you were saying there, because one of the things that I've come across in my Beatleness is the idea that George carried with him maybe more of the inherent, quote, Beatles sound than the others did, mm. necess- like in their solo work. George was more capable of producing a beatle sounding song than the others. And I wonder if it has to do with that chord structure, like what you're saying. Like, I think it does. Anyone can do C, E, D, whatever, but those major sevenths and things like that, those signature kind of pass-through Beatle chords are so highlighted in George songs. Maybe that's part of what makes that sound so beatle I think there's something to that, because one thought I was having listening through the album again was just how beatle a lot of it sounded. And how, as you say, he does seem to have access to the most, yeah. I don't want to say stereotypical, but characteristic sort of Beatles sound with those chords, with the diminished chords passing through and the augmented chords and things like that. Listen to it, Don't Come Easy. Yeah. I mean, if there wasn't a more beatle sounding song produced in the 70s, I don't know what it is. But yeah, I agree with you. This is a very serene start to the record. I mean, as I wrote in my notes here, maybe the perfect opening moment. It serves as a a conversation between George and Dylan, sure, but it also kind of serves the audience, too. Like, George asking the public to let him in. 
let me in here. I'm, you know, I've been here. It's the, it's the first former Beatle masterpiece and it begins with an ask for consent, which is kind of really funny because of George's background with Lennon and McCartney. You know, he's sort of asking you, Hey, come on, let me in. And that's probably subconscious, but I think there's, at le- I mean, at the very least, it's there. Mm. So he's kind of talking in the way Lennon and McCartney did with the girl, you know, to the audience and stuff. But I think he's doing it in a very interesting, subtle, and actually kind of sophisticated way here. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just thinking about it. Early solo Beatles, they were all sort of masters of understated or subdued album openers at that time. You think about Imagine. Yeah. You think about Lovely Linda at the beginning of McCartney. Right. Just coming in really easy. Guys, Mother's not a very mellow opening, but well, <laughs> neither is too many people. But <laughs> well, Mother starts. Mother starts, yeah, but it gets slow. it gets going pretty hard within five minutes. You know, my favorite yeah. moment in this uh, song is the chorus, which is kind of this groovy little beat-driven, vaguely hip hopish call to arms almost, and the the rhythm section is absolutely on fire here as well. I do want to j- just make reference to that because I. I do want to call out that I, in my notes, wrote hip-hop-ish a couple times, and obviously this predates Hmm? hip-hop by, (laughs) you know, quite a while, but I think it might have been sort of that groovy, you know, kind of black music sound that he picked up from Billy, those Hmm. sort of, um, the very uh, hefty bottom and those sort of bouncy little moments in there that kind of give you this little hint of what something like hip-hop would become later. Interesting. You wouldn't have known that Bob Dylan contributed any lyrics here. And George is kind of pointing to that in that quote you read, that it's sort of like, yeah, Bob Dylan's writing some lyrics on my song. <laughs> Let's get some crazy Mr. Jones shit up in here. And <laughs> all I have is yours. <laughs> you know, it's, it's pretty, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's pretty, pretty understated. So yeah, even the lyrics are really just sort of minimal here. It's just a really, it's like a pulse song in that sense of being just about how the words sound really. The other thing to point out too, is that much like in our discussion last episode, one might have assumed that George left to his own devices would come up with this Indian sounding record. What does the song open on? It opens on something that sounds more like the band. It sounds something, it sounds yeah. like a folk record actually, which yeah. you know speaks to what he and Ravi had discussed about George's roots and like really doubling down on where you come from as opposed to where you know other people come from and whether or not you relate to that is sort of neither here nor there. But what, what, what about you? Like what is your root? So hmm. I think it's interesting that not a single sitar can be found on this record, I, I don't think. Um, but I, you know, I think you can look at his slide guitar style. We're going to talk later about some of the interesting like time signature changes that really, it's pretty clear that these things are coming from his encounter with Indian music. Oh, for sure. Yeah, he, yeah. he absorbed it and integrated it into his style. But it's true, he isn't doing anything overt. I think it's really cool that he stopped doing anything overtly Indian. When's the first time he uses a sitar on a track after this? When we was fab? Like, I think. Yeah, right. When he's trying to be retro. Yeah. yeah. I think McCartney beat him to the punch with, uh, what is it? Tragedy. Tragedy, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) With the moon boots. (laughs) 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 But yeah, it's it's a beautiful opening and kind of sets the table for the next track, which is My Sweet Lord. So it's almost like a prologue in a way. Yeah. I'd have you anytime. It sort of, you know, like you say, sets the stage gets everything ready for the real opening of the album, which is this major, major statement 
from George Harrison. You know, I never really thought of it as a prologue that this My Sweet Lord is actually the real opening track, almost like Lovely Linda, you know, is on McCartney. Doesn't it feel a little that way, though, when My Sweet Lord starts? It's like, here we go, you know? I mean, it only dawned on me now that you said it, but I agree. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So just to pull from the I Me Mind book again, George said of this one, he was inspired to write My Sweet Lord by the Edward Hawkins singer's version of Oh Happy Day. George says, I thought a lot about whether to do My Sweet Lord or not because I would be committing myself publicly and I anticipated that a lot of people might get weird about it. Many people fear words like Lord and God. It makes them angry for some reason. The point was I was sticking my neck out because now I would have to live up to something. But at the same time, I thought, nobody's saying it. I wish someone else was doing it. You know, everyone is going bebop baby. Okay, it may be good to dance to, but I was naive and I thought we could express our feelings to each other, not suppress them and keep holding them back, which is kind of a- Who was going bebop baby in 1970? (laughs) I think, okay, well, he was writing this in 77, 78 into 79 mm. i think he that's a that's a paul probably oh, reference well, there because he may, maybe yeah yeah because i know george took exception with paul's approach <laughs> and of course there's bit bop bit bop baby um oh yeah someone was going bit bop baby it's true and i think that that may be what he's conflating here but that's me reading into it a little but mm. anyway he says well it was what i felt and why should i be untrue to myself I came to believe in the importance of if you feel strongly about something, you should say it. And then he goes on to discuss the lawsuit, which we don't really have to get into much here. But a little bit of additional background. This was written during George's time on tour with Delaney and Bonnie. When he presented it to Preston at the Encouraging Words sessions, he did so on a straight gospel level and evidently had to coax the backup singers into singing the Hare Krishna part, which is really (laughs) really funny to me. Because in fact, I had a... Uh, my first boss, a guy named Greg Pogue, he's a uh, wonderful, um, wonderful man from from Philadelphia and uh, black man. And he was saying at the time when he when this came out, he was really feeling my sweet lord until the Krishna part because that that was a barrier for him. Oh. Um, like he couldn't reconcile the idea that George is saying here, which is that all religion is the same. Because when you listen to George talk about religion, he talks about Jesus in the same context as he would. Krishna or whoever. Yeah, it's a kind of pan-spirituality, yeah. But this was recorded on the first day of All Things Must Pass sessions at EMI on May 28th, 1970. It was tried as just an acoustic and harmonium arrangement before they finally abandoned that and switched to the full band approach. Take 16 was the keeper. And some blame Spectre, actually, for the similarities to He's So Fine. I mentioned the lawsuit 
Later in the 70s, George was sued and successfully, successfully sued for this song sounding very similar to the Chiffon's song, He's So Fine. But some say, and I kind of maybe even agree, that without Spectre's very distinct kind of Motown-y sound, that it would have sounded more like Oh Happy Day and not He's So Fine, hmm. which is kind of an interesting point of view on that. And another point of interest on this, the first number one single by an ex-Beatle. How about that? Where you land on uh, My Sweet Lord? I love My Sweet Lord. You wouldn't normally hear me say those words. <laughs> um. <laughs> you godless heathen, you. <laughs> but yeah, I, I really like it. And I, okay, so this whole pan-spiritualism thing, you know, I'm thinking about how I reacted to it when I first heard it. And it, it was a bit strange and a bit, you know, out of rock and roll character for somebody to be talking all this God stuff. You're listening to pop rock. You don't expect someone to start talking about God. It's, you know, it's a bit distracting. Yeah, <laughs> so sure. There's gospel, which can be cool. I'm just using cool in the classic sense here, okay? Yeah. There's gospel, which can be cool, but it's hard to make Christian rock cool, <laughs> you know? It really is. And so I remember being a kid and, and confronting this track for the first time and being so charmed by the musicality of it, frankly, so swept away by the way this sort of I don't know, the almost striding, fast, breezy pace that it has. Yeah. And the beautiful sound of the acoustic guitars, the very affecting key change that happens as the tempo goes up and they really get into the chanting. I just remember being so swept up by the musicality of it that it was sort of like, well, okay, this is cool. Like spiritual rock, it actually is. Yeah. Deal with it. This is cool. Well, I know what I think of late 70s Dylan and early 80s Dylan. Oh, he's yeah. doing his his religious thing. And it's quasi-cool, kind of depending, as, you know, from song to song, it varies. Yeah. Like, there can be something about the fire and brimstone-y, gospel-y quality of some of the songs on Street Legal or, I don't know, certainly Infidels, that it, that's kind of charming. Or I don't know if charming, but compelling. Let's yeah. say that's kind of compelling. But... <laughs> Yeah, I just think that's hard to pull off aesthetically. You know, we don't even have to get into how we <laughs> feel about religion or anything as, as a general. I mean, who wants to, right? I mean, we don't have to get into that. <laughs> I'm just talking about it as an aesthetic thing yeah. that it's kind of hard to pull off. Like songs about marriage, like McCartney was doing the domesticity thing, and that's hard to pull off. But he did sometimes write yep. cool songs, you know, aesthetically appealing and compelling songs about domesticity. So... It seems as if, you know, maybe there was a thing happening there in the 70s where all the, and in the late 60s, where all the things that the, that the hippies and that the, uh, the young 60s mods had been doing, they sort of started embracing the opposite, almost to see if they could pull it off aesthetically. So you had the birds going country, you know, yeah. eventually you have, you have Bob Dylan going country, you had Bob Dylan later going Christian. Like, was he really going Christian or was it like an aesthetic move? <laughs> or <laughs> to see if he could pull something <laughs> off, you know, <laughs> or, or a reaction. You know, you go so far in one direction that you you snap back and and 
maybe go a bit too whole hog in the other direction. Yeah. I think it's interesting you you point that out. I agree with George that it is a barrier for people. I have an anecdote. A couple weeks ago, my brother and I attended a, a concert, and the opening act was a singer named Natalie Bergman. And Natalie released a Christian kind of gospel-slash-rock record. And I quite like it, even though I don't necessarily subscribe to all of its viewpoints. I like it on a musical sort of level, and I like her voice and stuff. So I came into the show very, very prepared for, for what I was going to hear. But my brother and I were in the pit, and we could see people around us going, what, Jesus? Like, what are you talking about? Je- <laughs> you want us to sing Jesus will, will save me? Like, what? What? Do you, what? You know, and you can actually see the aversion happening in people. And not not saying that's good or bad, because I, I don't happen to be... Are you a Seinfeld a, guy? I am. <laughs> so, you know the scene where Elaine gets into Putty's car and starts going through his radio stations, and they're all Christian rock? <laughs> and she's like, Jesus? <laughs> What is happening right now? Yeah. Yeah. Here's one. I borrowed Putty's car and all the presets on his radio were Christian rock stations. I like Christian rock. It's very positive. It's not like those real musicians who think they're so cool and hip. Well, I don't find myself to be an especially religious person. In fact, I'm not. So, I mean, I'm listening on a music level, but... You know, it is interesting to to get that reaction. So George must have been very self-conscious of it, like he says. But look, this thing was a screaming runaway hit with a capital H, just... And deservedly so. It's truly joyous. It's a truly joyous record. Well, that slide alone. Good Lord. You know, Clapper may have been the lead on the first track, and that may have been fine, but this this slide on this song is sublime. You know, George's lead, has there ever been a better lead guide through a hit single than this. I I don't think so. In fact, I think some reviewers said of it at one point that George's slide on this song and throughout this album is as distinct as the mark of Zorro. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Which is kind of like, that's an interesting way to put it. It makes me also think of Anthology when McCartney was, I think he had said, I don't know if it was like facetiously or not, or like he was taking the piss or not, but he said something to the effect of, well, how's George's guitar going to sound on Free as a Bird? Is it going to sound like, you know, My Sweet Beatles or something? It's like, <laughs> pretty <ooh>. much. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> George is singing on this track, the yearning, the almost painful yearning, reaching for something quality that it has. It's really, really beautiful vocal. Uh, There are some tracks where I do think he, as we said earlier, gets buried a little or some things like his voice is a little too quiet, not singing out enough. But this is one definitely where he just sounds amazing. It's perfect for the song. I made a note here to myself at about a minute 45, Phil Spector comes into the song. (laughs) Like, because there's a point where it's sort of like one vibe. And then when the drums kind of come in. Yeah, the key change. I think that's a, a glorious moment. It picks up too. It's driving the drums. Which you don't expect, because it comes from this kind of choiry thing, and then suddenly, boom, you're in a pop rock song. You know, A big one, yeah, with two drummers in the same room, playing at the same time, and a bunch of guitars. I think five guitars doubling the main part, the main rhythm part. Yeah. So he's, yeah, he's created a guitar section. You know, again, it's big, beautiful, chorusy sound. I like your note about his vocal being strong on this one. I think it's one of his stronger vocals, just in his solo career in general. Yeah. And... 
kind of goes with the other note I had on this, which was, I wish I loved anything as much as George seemingly loves God in this thing, because like, <laughs> it sounds so, like you were saying, that yearning is, is really there, and, and boy, it's, it's, um, it's a plea, actually, you know? It's not preachy. I never interpret it as preachy. I interpret it as somebody desperate for a connection. And also really, really wanting to spread the gospel, if you will really wanting to let other people know, which is a theme that'll come back on this album. Like, isn't it a pity, for example? Yeah, and there are moments where his stuff does get a bit preachy later. I think there are times when his sardonic nature or his grumpiness, as we pointed out last time, intertwines with the religious thing and it starts to sound Ooh, a bit yeah. browbeating in moments, but not here. And certainly, I don't think on this album at all, because there's, there's not really that many religious Waiting songs. on you all, there is uh, some real anger on that song. Yeah, but I don't ever get the sense that it's browbeating. I get the sense there that it, that's frustration or something. Like, it's mm. not him telling you how to live. It's, it's him frustrated with how other people are living. <laughs> Obviously, it's a classic, a beautiful, beautiful tune. It brings us to track three here, Wawa. One of my favorites on the album. Oh, yeah. Uh, one of my all-time... What, what a thing. <laughs> ...favorite songs. I mean, it's so badass. <laughs> Fucking amazing guitar riff that opens the song. That in itself. And that's the kind of thing I, I've talked about on occasion where a song can be repetitive and it's okay with me, even though it might not always be, but it's okay if it's a cool enough thing you're repeating. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? Like, yeah, let me hear that uh, about a hundred more times. Oh, absolutely. So, yeah. What a lick. <laughs> um, interestingly, I... I played with a couple guys in, I wouldn't call it a band so much as like a, a hangout collective or something, but we, we would all bring like songs that we wanted to play with each other to the sessions. And on my very first rehearsal with that group of people, I brought Wawa. Mm. And it's interesting on a subconscious level, I didn't pick a Paul song or something or even a Beatles song. I wanted to play and participate in Wawa because this song is just so rock and roll. Like it's just... It rocks up there with your best Led Zeppelin licks, that kind of stuff. Not not that it's trying to do the same thing, but I think the lick itself is so effective in the way Led Zeppelin licks are effective that it kind of does the same thing in the end. And it's interesting, it's coming out of George freaking Harrison, you know? Well, yeah. At the same time, though, if you strip all the rock and rolly elements away and get down to the song, it's quite the little pop song. Sure. It's almost soft rockish, you know? It's almost a precursor, as I'd, I'd have you anytime is as well a bit of a precursor to some of the adult contempo of the later in the same decade right because there are slick chord changes there's uh, you know these sort of like that's really actually quite the pop song melody beatlesy and the chords some of the chords are fancy there are diminished chords and things in here that also is a little unrock and rolly but the sound the guitar sound the overall sound of the band really like hard rock for the time I feel like the lyrics were probably a barrier against people in that soft rock vein covering this song, you know? Oh, sure. Because the lyrics are angry. Yeah. Well, they're angry, yeah. And also Wawa is a little abstract. I mean, he's, he's <laughs> saying it as a headache, 
it's a guitar pedal, but also like it's a guitar pedal. Yeah, it's a, a headache. Yeah. <laughs> it's my, one of the first things my dad bought me when um, I was learning guitar for the first time. He bought me a wah wah pedal, and I was like, oh hey, like this song. Well, I, I I'm gonna skip reading the I Me Mine here because it's it could be boiled down fairly easily toward George when he left the Let It Be sessions or the Get Back sessions at the time, wrote this about his experience being fed up with the Beatles. And so this track is just about when you, especially when you read the lyrics, this track is about him being absolutely done with dealing with Lennon and McCartney. <laughs> and I think uh, if you think of wah-wah as like a, a pulsing headache. Yes. <laughs> yeah. You're giving me a wah-wah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you made me such a big star. Being there at the right time, cheaper than a dime. You know, it's yeah. nasty. It's like piggies in that sense, where it's just really... Is he saying... I think he's saying that he was cheaper than a dime, right? That he was easy to have in the band and to boss around? Or is he saying the Beatles were cheaper than a dime? I think you could interpret it both ways. I always interpreted mm-hmm. it as the Beatles, like just like him talking about... He says, you made me such a big star, being there at the right time, cheaper than a dime. And I guess I interpreted that as him not talking to them, but talking to the world. You made me, like, you, the world, made me such a big star for being there at the right time. And in doing so, he's knocking the Beatles down a peg, and specifically knocking John and Paul down a peg by putting them on the same footing. Well, yeah, we were big. We were the biggest. But we were there at the right time. It was a matter of timing. And so you can't take all that credit for yourself, you you big-headed fucks, you know, like that kind of thing. Sure. Um, Yeah. That works. And it's funny, Beetledom doesn't really always have these kinds of licky tracks. Like, they're in the early songs a lot because they're ripping off whoever, you know, like, you know, like Day Trippers a lick and, you know, all these types of things. But whenever they do, and especially in this instance, I really gravitate toward it because I like lick based tunes a lot. You know, they're not all that prevalent, really, at least not in a hard rock sense. So when this, I found this song, you know, obviously when I was a little kid because I grew up with this shit, but when I was in high school, and I really listened to All Things Must Pass. I was like, oh my God, this is so badass, you know? I don't need no wah-wahs. It's a great line. There's going to be a place later on where I'm going to pick on the grammar. But right there, I'm cool with the grammar. That's yeah. straight vernacular. I don't need no wah-wahs. <laughs> right. <laughs> I, I really like it. It, yeah. really, it really speaks. That's right. <laughs> and those horns. Oh my God. Oh. completely buried in the 2020 mix sadly which is why that mix can never quite be the definitive version of this record in my estimation but those horns that bouncy kind of and it and they bring you to the next part and then it starts back up again there's such a churn in this track it never stops it never lets you off the hook it's just so driving This features Jim Price on trumpet, Bobby Keys on sax. Oh, they might have just come up with a part. He might have just sung it to those guys and they double-tracked it or something, which is why it sounds so big. Well, also, Bobby Keys is a master. I mean, 
we talked about the Rolling Stones earlier. Just listen to Bobby's work on that stuff. It's just like, wow. Some of that is like the song is Bobby Keys. They could have come up with the part themselves. Then yeah. You're saying. yeah. And this is another one where I picked up some of that hip hop flair, I guess in that sort of, maybe in that bouncy nature of some of those parts like that. And may, maybe I'm just responding to the horns actually, but we know Bobby spent a lot of time with, you know, very bluesy musicians as well. So it could have come from that as well. At the very end, I never quite picked this up till last night. There's the vague sound of a car speeding away. <laughs> is there? Yeah, and I don't know if that is just something I interpreted from some studio noise or if it was actually a subtle sound effect placed in there. But so like the motorcycle at the end of moving out. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm out of here, man. <laughs> but that's kind of what he's saying in this. I'm out of here. I've had enough. Yeah. I'm done. Well, if I can find it, I'll see if I can turn it up and let everyone hear it. Now, one thing I will say before we get into this one is that it's a fine song. I'm not sure we need 12 minutes of it <laughs> on this record. <laughs> well, that's why when you were talking to me yesterday, I think it was yesterday, where you're like, I don't know what I'm going to say about these other than I love them. I was like, well, there are things I would nitpick. Like, Yeah, it's true. I, I was really on a high yesterday listening through the album and just thinking, wow. Well, what I was thinking, quick aside, is that in my little career as a podcaster, this is really only the fourth time I've had the chance to talk about it. An album I consider a masterpiece. I guess they'd be Ram, Band on the Run, and then with you, Armed Forces, and now All Things Must Pass. And I just mean, you know, like a cultural touchstone. Right. You know, an album that's not just an album that you consider cool or that Beatles fans know and like, but that I think generally in the public and in the critical consensus, they're regarded as important. So it was just, it's just a, such a pleasure to listen through it all, and I'm just thinking that in the grand scheme of things, it's just a fucking perfect album. And I can find ways to justify all of that, isn't it a pity? But being the kind of guy I am, I get a little impatient when a three and a half minute song lasts 12 minutes. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I got the same problem with Hey Jude. <laughs> that song is wrapped up in four minutes, okay? <laughs> Does not need to keep going. I think the coda of Hey Jude, I never get sick of it. Oh, yeah? I've listened to that song a zillion times. I never get sick of it. It's because I got McCartney- sick of it after a couple listens. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I did. Here's how I know I'll never get sick of it is because it's my daughter's favorite Beatles song. In the case of Hey Jude, it's one that I'm never not okay with playing again. And it's five minutes plus, And I just, 
I don't know. For oh, some, it's seven minutes. Jesus, um, yeah, <laughs> but it's a three and a half minute song with an extra four or four and a half minutes of stuff. Yeah. But McCartney's different fills, like his vocal fills, I call them, like at the end there, are so varied and so distinct and interesting, and keep me as a listener on my toes. That it, it's always exciting to me. I don't, I don't know what it is about it. It's like live. Okay, I'm about done with it. Live. All right, just oh, yeah. the girls. All that. <laughs> I'm done with that. But at the actual record itself, listening to Paul flex that voice at probably the best, mm-hmm. arguably his voice has ever sounded, is like unbelievable to me. I get tired of it. You know, it's, I didn't really get tired of it after a few listens because of all the reasons you just listed. But over the years, it's something I call Hey Juditis. And an album that I love that has a bad case of Hey Juditis is Songs in the Key of Life by Stevie Wonder. Yeah. Has a lot of three-minute songs that drag on for seven minutes where it's just vamping for four minutes. In the context of a single like Hey Jude, okay, big deal. But in the context of an album, you're really slowing down the action when you just have minutes of repetition. You know, oh, nothing sure. Nothing but vamping to, to vary it. So, yeah. I don't know. Anyway, that's my big, isn't it a pity complaint, is that it's a bit much of it here. I've even heard it suggested that isn't it a pity that the extended ending of version one is a parody of sorts. Yes. Of Hey Jude. And there being two versions as a way of George saying, <laughs> look, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> the lead guitar would have worked if you had let me do it. You can do a song more than one way. Eh, you can interpret it that way. In fact, I might. George is very vindictive. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I mean, it's whether you interpret it as a dig at Paul or not, it is a meditation on the demise of friendship. And obviously the demise of his friendship with Paul in that short window, we know they picked it back up again not too long after this, but you know, that must have been a big deal for him. Well, via the I Me Mind book, George said of this one, it's about whenever a relationship hits a down point. Instead of what other people do, like breaking each other's jaws, I wrote this song. (laughs) It was a chance to realize that if I had felt someone had let me down, then there was a chance that I was letting someone else down. We tend to break each other's hearts and take and not give back. Isn't it a pity? Not that I'm a huge Phil Spector fan or anything like I guess Phil Spector's super fan or something, but the orchestration on this track, specifically this version of the track, is a highlight for me. The violins that accentuate the verses and then the add the the string section just adds a bit of extra drama to the oh, bridges. It and yes. it's a glorious production part, I think, on the part of both George and Phil. This is one of those instances where the wall of sound I think is not only appropriate but like needed. Yeah. And this is one where George is expressing some frustration. You know, not too many people can see we're all the same. You know, because of all their tears, their eyes can't hope to see the beauty that surrounds them. Oh, isn't it a pity? It's it's a bit not quite misanthropic, (laughs) but it's judgmental, or at least it's it's frustrated, you know? I agree. And I think though the distinction here for me is that my interpretation was that George's including himself in that. Yeah, yeah. And when you look at it that way, it it stops seeming quite as angry, right? I mean, just by virtue of what he said about breaking each other's hearts and, and him saying that he had the realization if I was letting someone else down, there was a chance I was letting them down too. And that's an interesting bit of mature empathy that, in my experience, at least going from my own personal experience, has, took a long time to kind of realize because when you're a kid, everything revolves around you. And imagine being a kid and a celebrity and having been a celebrity all your young adult life. 
of course everything would feel like it revolves around you and so him to have that realization did it come from his religion did it come from, well, i don't know where it came from but it's an important and i think very mature realization and that word mature is one of the words i would use to sum up this entire record it feels very mature and wizened in a way that should not have necessarily come out of whatever he was 28 at the time what is he 27 28 yeah, yeah. <laughs> well the beatles all had that quality even paul even ringo you could tell they'd been through something heavy you know, they yeah. were not normal 30 year olds, you know, by the time they broke up. Oh, by the way, when I read the words, not too many people, it reminded me, okay, too many people. <laughs> that reminded me of I'd Have You Any Time, where it's let me roll it to you. Huh. What's going on with that? Is that an expression that was going around at the time, or did Paul accidentally lift it? Or what happened? Why is there a Paul McCartney song called Let Me Roll It to You? as he says in the actual song, and that's straight out of this George Harrison track. Well, we know that Paul re-recorded and rewrote portions of Ram after having listened to All Things Must Pass. At least that's the conventional wisdom. I don't know if that was an actual quote from Paul or not, but I don't know. It could have been something so subconscious. I think he was probably scared by this record and probably did reapproach some things. Well, but he wouldn't... Being scared by it wouldn't make him lift a line from it and call a song that. Uh, but might have dwelled in his subconscious, is what I'm saying. Like, it might have been something that stuck with him. I'm just wondering, is that an expression? Because you've got Let It Roll later on the album. I just Is that an expression that was going around in the late 60s? Let me roll it to you? And, yeah, I don't know. Or what? I don't know. Because it's a very distinctive, to my ear, not being a man from the 60s. Uh, <laughs> I, I haven't heard that expression anywhere but in this song and in the Paul McCartney song from 73 so I'm just wondering I think it might have also been the let it of it all that's the thing that jumped out to me on this record there's two let it's there's let it roll and let it down uh, yeah the ballads right. are Frankie Chris but you also have let it be let me say it to you yeah let uh, me play it yeah let yeah. me play and it let me say it let me lay it on you yeah you also have let it bleed from the stone so I was there a let it thing going around at the time <laughs> There was a let it thing happening at the time. Big, big moment for the phrase let it. It was just, they were having a moment. Very hot right now. Join us next time for part two of our discussion of All Things Must Pass.